This is The Salem and Other Witch Hunts by Mike Kubrick. I saw Sarah Good with the devil. I saw Goody Osborne with the devil. I saw Bridget Bishop with the devil. The speaker is Abigail Williams, niece of Reverend Samuel Paris, and act one of Arthur Miller's classic play, The Crucible. This character is based on the historical figure of the same name. Abigail, along with her cousin Betty, accuse citizens of Salem of being witches. The young girls claim that they were being attacked by these men and women who had made a pact with the devil. The charges by these youngsters spread like wildfire, and in the spring of 1692, they launched a terrifying wave of hysteria. The Salem witch trials that followed are all the subject of Miller's play. A harrowing example of iniquity and unreason, the tragic proceedings have become synonymous with justice gone mad. In less than a year, over 200 individuals were accused of witchcraft, 20 of whom were executed. The trials were swift. Anyone who suspected that some untoward event or development was the work of a witch could bring the charge to a local magistrate. The magistrate would have the alleged evildoer arrested and brought in for public interrogation, where the suspect was urged to confess. Whatever his or her response, if the charge of witchcraft was deemed to be credible, the accused was turned over to a superior court and brought before the grand jury. Much of the evidence in the trial was the testimony of the accuser. If more evidence was needed, the grand jury might consider the so-called witch cake, a bizarre concoction that was made from rye meal and urine of the witch's victim and fed to a dog. Eating the cake was supposed to hurt the witch, whose cry of pain could betray her secret identity. One suspect was subjected to pain forte et dure, a form of torture in which he was pressed beneath an increasingly heavy load of stone to make him enter a plea. He died without confessing. Some of those convicted of witchcraft were paraded through the streets of the town on their way to the execution. The sentencing of Bridget Bishop, the first victim of the witch trials, was typical of the Salem justice. Bishop was accused of not living a Puritan lifestyle because she wore black clothing. Her coat had been found to be oddly cut to or torn in two ways, and behavior was regarded as immoral. Thus convicted of witchcraft, she was tried on June 10, 1692, and executed by hanging the same day. Immediately following this execution, the court adjourned for 20 days and asked for advice from New England's most influential ministers upon the state of things as they then stood. A mere five days later, they produced a voluble answer penned by Cotton Mather, the prolific pamphleteer of the period, assuring the court and the grand jury that they had done well. The prominent ministers humbly recommended more of the same, that is, the speedy and vigorous prosecution of such as have rendered themselves obnoxious according to the direction given in the law of God and the welcome statute of the English nation. More people were accused, arrested, and examined, but historians believe that they that by September 1692 the hysteria had begun to abate and the public opinion turned against the trials. In 1693, some of the convicted suspects were pardoned by the governor. The Massachusetts General Court annulled the guilty verdicts and even granted indemnities to their victims' families. Other Historic Witch Hunts The Salem episode was a historic landmark, but by no means a rare example of behavior that can afflict frightened, angry, or frustrated people if they're urged by demagogues to confront an alleged menace. 100 years after the Salem trials, courts in France launched mass executions of suspected enemies of the revolution that deposed the monarchy. The Reign of Terror, conducted without trials and made more efficient by the use of the new labor-saving machine, the guillotine, lasted from 6 September 1793 until 28 July 1794. It beheaded a total of 42,000 individuals. Humanity's most heinous crime, 
the Holocaust was carried out from 1933 till 1945 by 200,000 fanatics acting on orders of Adolf Hitler's Nazi regime. That it was also abetted by crass bigotry and sense of superiority than affecting many Germans. The toll included an estimated 6 million Jews, one-fourth of them children, and 5 million people, other people the Nazis regarded as minderwertig or inferior. They were primarily ethnic Poles, captured Soviet civilians, and prisoners of war. Other Slavs, Romanis, communists, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the mentally and physically disabled. The mass murder was carried out by gas or shooting in extra extermination facilities located in Germany and German-occupied territories. The Great Purge in the former USSR, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was carried out from 1936 to 1938 on orders of the Communist Party chairman and Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. The main victims of the Moscow show trials were communist officials and upper echelons of the, the country's Red Army, some of whom confessed to crimes they had not committed. The purge terrorized the entire Soviet civil service and other leading members of the society, such as intellectuals, writers, academians, artists, and scientists. According to declassified Soviet archives during 1937 and 1938, the state police detained 1,548,366 persons, of whom 681,692 were shot, an average of 1,000 executions a day. Some historians believe that the actual executions were two to three times higher. Public scares in the U.S. In the United States, groundless fears, prejudice, and demagoguery produced three notable events that echoed the Salem trials. All three happened under extremely tense and stressful circumstances caused by global events, World War II, and by the Cold War. The first episode started three months after December 7, 1941, when Japanese military aircraft attacked Pearl Harbor. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued an order that allowed regional military commanders to designate military areas from which any and or all persons may be excluded. The order reflected the widespread fear that presumably unassimilated Japanese immigrants and their offspring would be more loyal to Japan than to their new country. To prevent the rise of such an enemy within during the war, state and local authorities along with West Coast removed over 110,000 Japanese Americans from their homes, almost two-thirds of whom were U.S. citizens and placed them in internment camps. Hundreds of the young Japanese-American internees volunteered for the U.S. Army and fought with distinction. After the war, the camps were closed and the residents were allowed to return to their homes. The subsequent investigation by a special government commission found little evidence of Japanese disloyalty and concluded that the wartime scare had been the product of racism. The second and third disgraceful episode were triggered by an irrational fear of communist subversion before and after the, the onset of the Cold War, an era in which the Soviet leaders proclaimed the superiority of Marxist doctrines and threatened the, to bury the li liberal democracies of the United States and other Western nations. In the late 1930s, following two major film industry strikes, Hollywood movie producer and members of the U.S. Congress accused the Screenwriters Guild of including Communist Party members. Although the party was legal and its membership was not a crime, the charges led to widespread blacklisting of screenwriters, actors, and other entertainment professionals in the 1940s and 50s. The, the so-called First Red Scare ruined the careers of hundreds of individuals working in the film industry. It peaked in 1947 when 10 of these film writers and directors were brought before the House Un-American Activities Committee and questioned whether they were or had been Communist Party members. When the accused refused to answer, they were cited for contempt of Congress, fired from their jobs, and began serving a one-year jail sentence in 1950. 
The start of the second Red Scare is usually traced to the speech that Joseph McCarthy, a U.S. senator from Wisconsin, delivered on February 9, 1950, to the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling in West Virginia. Already prominent as a rabid anti-communist, he waved a sheet of paper and announced, I have here in my hand a list of 205 members of the Communist Party who, he claimed, are still working and shaping policy in the State Department. McCarthy never released the alleged list of names or proved any of his charges, but his reckless and vicious accusations made him both feared and famous. During his brief political career, he made undocumented charges of communism, communist sympathies, disloyalty, and homosexuality against hundreds of politicians and non-government individuals. His attacks included the administration of President Harry S. Truman, the Voice of America, and the United States Army. Government employees and workers in private industry whose characters and loyalties were smeared by McCarthy's broad brush lost their jobs. His crusade of slander ended four years after it started when his charges were rejected during televised McCarthy army hearings in 1954, and he was publicly denounced by fellow Republicans and Edward R. Murrow, a leading TV journalist. The senator's only legacy, in addition to our lexicon, McCarthyism, is a term that stands for demagogic, scurrilous, and reckless character assassination of opponents. All three U.S. public scares had a significant aftermath. In 1980, President Jimmy Carter appointed a commission to investigate whether the decision to put Japanese Americans into internment camps had been justified. The commission found that it was not. In 1988, President Ronald Reagan signed into law the Civil Liberties Act, which apologized for the internment on behalf of the U.S. government and authorized a payment of $20,000 to each individual camp survivor. The law admitted that Government actions were based on race prejudice, war hysteria, and failure of political leadership, and 82,219 Japanese Americans who had been interned and their heirs were paid more than $1.6 in reparations. The Hollywood blacklisting officially ended in 1960 when Dalton Trumbo, a former Communist Party member and one of the Hollywood Ten, was publicly credited as the screenwriter of a highly successful film, Exodus, and was later publicly acknowledged for writing the screenplay for Spartacus. While he was blacklisted, Trumbo wrote under a pseudonym the script for two Academy Award-winning movies. And, and in 2016, his story was subject to the movie titled Trumbo. McCarthy's antics were rejected by the U.S. Senate, which on December 2, 1954, censured him by a vote of 67 to 22. It is one of the rare cases of such an extreme form of reputation by, fel by fellow senators, and it strongly affected McCarthy. He died three years later at the age of 48.